Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. Today, we're here with Amy McKay on McKay Farm and Ranch outside of La Crosse, Washington. Very excited to be visiting with you today, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carol. Um, would you share a bit about yourself, your farm, and who you farm with? Absolutely. My husband and I are um, wheat and cattle producers in the southwestern portion of Whitman County. So we're in the boot of Whitman County. As the crow flies, if you know where Pluse Falls is, we've the southwestern part of our farm is about I want to say maybe five miles from Palouse Falls. And then the northern the northern part of our farm, we farm along Highway 26 in between um, the Adams County line, right at the Palouse River and La Crosse. My farm with my husband, Mark, he is a fifth generation farmer. So it was his great, 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 great grandpa that came out here and um, settled in the area and started a wheat farm and of course they ran cattle back then too actually they ran sheep as well excellent there was generally a lot more livestock during that time i think they farmed with horses and my husband's a little um <laughs> miffed because if we don't get the moisture that the dayton area gets in the to grow the wheat and apparently his grandpa went great great Grandpa went down there because it was easier to farm, but then came back up here because it was the winters were as hard, and so it was easier on his animals. And so he's a little upset that he left a really good wheat-grown country to move to where we can't grow very good wheat, not as good. Well, you are still growing wheat here, so would you tell me a little bit more about your farming conditions, your crop rotation, sure. what that looks like? We uh, have a two-year rotation, and we basically just grow wheat, either winter wheat or spring wheat, and um, we generally do uh, soft white. It grows best in our area. We have anywhere from 11 inches of rainfall to about maybe 14 inches rainfall from one end of the farm to the other end of the farm where we farm. We started getting in, into no-till in maybe 2017. We purchased some ground that had previously been no-tilled. It had been in CRP for 20 years, 25 years. The guy, the producer, or the owner then pulled it out and leased it to a guy that no-tilled. So it went right from CRP into no-till. And then the owner decided to sell and we ended up purchasing it and continued with the no-till. And so that was our first no-till experience. And it was very exciting to me because I'd been attending uh, different grower meetings about no-till and that kind of thing. 
And my husband, and I asked my husband about why don't we no-till? And he, and he said, well, in the 80s, him and his dad watched people go broke no-tilling. And so it was hard for him to fathom that it could actually work. Well, in those years, they've really, the technology has come a long way between the drills that they use, the types of seed that we have that they, they utilize now. Maybe even just the type of knowledge we can share. Yes, yes exactly. Because if we hadn't been, go if, if I hadn't been going to some of the grower meetings about this, I never would have brought it back to my husband saying, this can work, this can work. And it works, it works. But we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket. So we still do um, some conventional farming, but we also do redu reduced tillage too, like a two pass, or yeah, two pass farming. So we go anywhere from no-till to a two pass to conventional. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, from what I understand, it sounds like you farm a, a pretty good range of different conditions as well. And so maybe there are different parts of your farm that lend itself more to that management. Um, I would like to ask when you did take over that first piece of no-till ground, how was the soil? How did it look compared to maybe what you were used to? Well, let me tell you. So we have a thing called cereal rye on our ground. No, maybe I've heard of that. Maybe, yeah. We do a lot of roguing. And it is so much easier to rogue rye on ground that's been no-tilled because you don't have the deep furrows and you aren't walking on the sides of hill trying to stand on a deep furrow and breaking your ankles. I like it for that because it's much easier to walk on when you're rubbing rye. Oh, and here I was uh, gonna, yeah. I was getting ready for something about, you know, the beautiful earthworms. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> those two shall come. Um, we still utilize uh, ammonia in the ground, of course, you know, anhydrous or aqua or whatever he's put in the ground. So I don't think that's quite conducive to a lot of earthworms. Uh, but the soil particulates aren't beat to death. Um, I think our ground clumps together better. I do know that in some of the cover cropping that I've done, it actually will hold the moisture better. So I think no-tilling lends to much better soil, much better soil health. Um, so that clumping together is called aggregate stability yes, and they actually yeah. like all the soil health people measure okay. that and there's all the different conversations about how best to do it. It's one of the top three indicators of soil health based on the um, soil health testing metrics. Okay. So just a little fun soil science for you. Thank you. <laughs> um, actually, you know, before we get too far into this, you have got an interesting story about how you came in to be a farm. You call yourself a farm her, right? Farm her. Yes. Um, I'm and, a farm her. And do you want to tell just the, the quick story about how you came to be on this farm? I lived in the Spokane area and I had met this guy gathering cattle on a, a ranch because I did horse cutting. So I had met him gathering cattle and I was a hairdresser. But I had also grown up on a, on a farm. I mean, we were dairy farmers when I was a kid. My dad is an agronomist or was an agronomist. He's retired now. So I'd known about farming. We had a small alfalfa farm. We had raised some cattle, um, pigs. But 
when I, I got invited to go gather cattle down here in the lacrosse area because I was my trainer was in Dusty. And this guy, he thought, ooh, hairdresser. She might have some cute friends or clients that she could introduce me to. <laughs> so I know, right? That's what he thought. So he started coming to me to get his hair done. <laughs> I actually was going to set him up with one of my friends. Yeah. And But at that point, I was not single. So, But then I ended up being single, and he jumped on that. So I got asked out for a date, and that was the end of the story. We just have been together ever since and got married, like, I don't know, a year and a half later or something. Did he pull the farm charm on you? He pulled the farm charm. For all of those women out there that are listening, if, you, if you're dating a producer or farmer, don't show them what you can do or what you're willing to do because you will end up doing it all. <laughs> they just expect it. <laughs> just good advice. <laughs> Honey, I can do the laundry and I can mop the floors. I can even cut your hair. But I can't drive a tractor. No, I'm not going to drive one of those grain trucks. How about the cows, the roping of the cows? Yeah, so that's awful lot of fun. I love doing that, going to brandings and dragon calves, and that's a lot of fun. But I, I'm left-handed, so being a left-handed roper is different. So... I had to learn left-handed roping from right-handed people. Imagine that's experience of a lot of different left-handed tasks. Probably, of learning yeah. it from yeah, right-handed people. Just do it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> just watching them do it backwards. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, so, you run your, so you run cows on your we operation. Um, are you into all that soil health integrated grazing? Do you I use am. the cows yes. in, uh, on the farm in that way? I've done a couple of cover crops and actually one year and very small small acres like he allowed me seven acres the first year and i think you told me that this is called your granola patch he calls it my granola patch yes it is my granola patch so you ran your cows on the granola patch. i did run my cows on the granola patch so i did intercropping the very first year because uh mike was it mike nester mike nester yes mike nester listen to him talk he is so awesome so he's been kind of a mentor of mine I just really really appreciate him and, and my husband really really likes him too so he's really listened to Mike talk about what Mike knows he does have a lot of fun stuff to say anyhow so I tried the intercropping let me just tell you you don't put the cattle out on your crop until the wheat is big enough to tolerate the cattle being on it and pulling it up by the roots. <laughs> because we ended up having to seed it twice because they ate all the wheat first before mm. they ate the rest of my cover crop. Okay, yeah, so you good. put, so you intercropped wheat. So what stage would you recommend getting the cows out there? Uh, like, I suppose at whatever stage the wheat would be, pal less palatable like it was young little tiny shoots that maybe you know five leaves it was little yummy you know like lettuce that's the baby lettuce that's so tasty compared to lettuce that's big and has maybe more milky taste to it i don't know uh but i'd probably wait longer than a month before i'd put them out uh yeah 
And then what did you have planted in between your wheat? You said it was intercropped? So yeah, so in addition to my wheat, I had, I have it here. It was, I had, uh, so I, I planted a variety called Mila, which is a very uh, drought tolerant. The variety of wheat I plant is called Mila, M-E-L-A. And it's it's a very drought tolerant wheat. They plant it more in the maybe seven to nine inch rainfall. And I thought, I'm gonna plant something out there that's more drought tolerant because I am planting, planting it with things that are gonna take some of the moisture, right? Just in case. Uh, so that was an experiment. I would do that again. I would still plant something that maybe was more of a drought tolerant wheat. But I also planted fava beans, um, forage, forage corn, uh, sorghum, sunflowers, millet, uh, mung bean, okra, guar, and um, turnips, purple top turnips. And out of all of those, um, only I think I only had two things that did not grow. Um, I was really surprised. Uh, the okra grew really well. The turnips were awesome. I actually pulled some up and we ate them for meals, you know, like I'd serve them for a side dish. But the sunflowers were spectacular and they came on a lot later in the season and I have beautiful pictures of my sunflowers and when it was time for my husband to reseed the patch because my cattle ate all the wheat in it and I had to mow down my cover crop I thought I was gonna cry because I'm on my tractor and I'm mowing down these beautiful sunflowers so I honestly wish that we I would have found somebody that had a a sunflower header and could have come in and harvested the sunflowers because I definitely had plenty. I would have had a good crop of sunflowers. So it sounds like you mowed those down pretty late stage. I did. Um, when, like about when in the year did you do that? End of September maybe, beginning of October. Okay. Yeah. Did you get some good pollinators out there in that cover crop? There were lots of butterflies, lots of birds. You don't normally see that many birds out in our area like that, but there were a lot of birds, a lot of lot of flying insects yes i hear cows like turnips too did you oh, end yeah, up running like the turnips. livestock out there oh, a, yep. a couple times or um i just left them on it so we have a trough out there that actually um, our conservation district helped uh, pay for part of our troughing system so we pipe water um, so the NRCS and the conservation district helped pay for these, this tropping system on some pasture we have and in through some of our uh, crops so that we can graze them on the stubble too. And that's the Whitman Conservation Whitman District? Whitman Conservation District and um, the NRCS. So we have like a mile and a half of buried pipe to reach the furthest corner of a pasture we have so that the cattle will actually spread out and graze further away and not just um, graze near where the water is mm -hmm. when we only have one spot to water. Where do you go to learn more about a topic before trying it? The internet. Yeah. I go to the internet and see what other people are doing. I've been to the Direct Seed Conference and uh, they do it in the Tri-Cities generally. They have some wonderful speakers, wonderful speakers. And it's not just about direct seeding, it's about trying all different types of cropping systems. Love it. 
So that's where I go. Um, our conservation district will help. The NRCS will help. Um, neighbors, like I have some neighbors around me that are doing all kinds of cover cropping and I don't know if they're doing any interseeding. And I only tried that once. I know Justin Ani's doing some different types of um, best management practices, BMPs. Yeah. Those are all really great resources. Is there, do you have a favorite place on the internet that you go to? So... Podcasts, perhaps? I'm just getting introduced to podcasting. So I haven't listened to a lot of podcasts, but I will be. Because My I didn't really realize that they were out there. Might I recommend the On Farm Trials podcast? <laughs> so I've listened to that one. I've listened to that one. <laughs> I hear there's some great interviews there. There are. There Lots are. Lots to learn. Yeah. I've gotten on and looked at maybe some of the extension, maybe in the Midwest, because it seems like they have a lot of different, a lot more... They've been doing it longer than we have been out here. The cover cropping. The cover cropping, mm -hmm. yep. Or even the no-tilling, that kind of thing. Yeah. But what they do doesn't always work for us. No, well, and that I think that is part of cropping systems innovation, not just discovering new things within, you know, that are applicable to the cropping system, being profitable while attaining stewardship goals. Um, but really being able to translate that, especially to the very heterogeneous region that, that we exist in here in the IPNW. Um, that's always, it's always the question is how is that going to work? So, um, great. Well, thanks. So would you tell me about your end of year decision-making for some of the things that you've tried? Um, what information do you use to know if it's a success and, and what do you compare it to? Well, I really don't have much to compare it to because I've done enough to be able to compare it. Um, so I do know like my second cover crop that I did. So we signed up for, I think it's under, it's an RCS equip program and I'm doing a cover cropping, part of a cover crop under that. And the seed mix that they picked out was way different than the seed mix I had done the first time and so it's like oh I don't know I don't know if that's gonna I want to try it out so I decided I'm gonna try it out before they have me slated to do it so do you have things you've tried in the recent past that you're trying again this year to see if it has a similar outcome we've incorporated more no-tilling on on some ground uh, especially ground that has been um, the soil has been, it's been very degraded. Yeah, uh, we took over a piece of ground um, that was, it's been conventionally farmed forever. And so we're trying to build soil particulates back up. Maybe eventually we'll have some aggregates in there. Um, soil carbon. Yes, soil carbon. Uh, keep it in the ground, right? Yeah. So and with that, you're doing more no-till it no sounds like uh <clears throat> yep <clears throat> we've i we started out doing maybe about a third of our ground no-till which started with some of the ground that we purchased that had been being no-tilled and the guy had uh been no-tilling it like i said it was pulled out of crp and had been in crp for 20 or 25 years pulled out 
they put it right into no-till. Um, and no-till down here, it's a beautiful crop when we get moisture at the right time. Not so good a crop when we don't get some of the moisture, the timely moisture. We deep furrow down here in our conventionally farmed ground and we know we can reach the moisture. Problem being, you have to worry about more rains coming after you seed and it crusting the ground and you don't get your, your, your crop up. So you have to reseed again, it costs a lot of money. Personally, I'd rather take the hit in maybe lack of bushels than pay that much more for that much more seed wheat. Well, and they do say as you build your soil organic carbon that it, it tends to hold more moisture in the soil. That's right. So theoretically somewhere there's a gain in there as well. You know, I, I, I saw that. So the year I did the cover crop the first year when I was talking about my sunflowers and growing that. I know one of the questions you might ask has to do with what did you learn maybe from an unintended consequence. And so I was mowing down my sunflowers and at this point in time we had not purchased our Ag Pro drill yet. We were still renting it, which meant we had to wait in line to be able to get it. So Mark thought that he was getting it on a certain day and he said, you need to get that crop mowed down so that I can drill through it. Got it mowed down. We didn't get the drill when we were supposed to. We'll back up a little, like, little bit. So when I went out into that soil and right across, we have a little farm road in between a conventionally farmed field and this um, no-till farmed field. The conventionally farmed field, you could dig down and try to compact the soil, no moisture, okay? I had had this cover crop on during the summer. I planted it like the middle of July, okay? Had cattle on it, grew a beautiful cover crop with all these lovely sunflowers. I, I mowed it down and my husband said, we're getting the drill like tomorrow, it needs to be mowed. So once I mowed, I dug down into the soil I could compact the soil and it stayed compacted. I had moisture in my ground after having this cover crop. All right, proof in the pudding. Okay, we had not gotten any moisture, are you kidding me? That cover crop created such a beautiful, um, well, I like to call it like a crowning glory, like having a beautiful head of hair, right? I thought you were going to talk about unintended consequences. It, that sounds so like what a happened win. was, it was a win. It was <laughs> yeah. totally a win. Yeah. If we would have got the drill for the next day. Uh. So this is what happens when you don't have that cover on there, right? You lose your moisture. Okay. Warm days in the fall, maybe a little bit of a breeze. I didn't have the cover crop. In, I didn't have the cover crop covering that soil anymore. My moisture disappeared. We didn't get the drill for two weeks. No moisture. What were you seeding oh, into that ground? We were putting winter wheat in the mm -hmm. ground, okay? With the AgPro drill. But we had to wait for the drill. We were supposed to get it like the next day. Had all kinds of moisture to seed into. All kinds. Would have got the crop up. Guess what? By the time it was like October, middle October or something and hadn't gotten any moisture, no moisture. That was, it ended up being, you know. Money and seed wheat. 
Yeah, it's just, I mean, it came up, but it wasn't very good because oh. it wasn't hardly any more. It was very spotty. Yeah. It does seem like that's one of the things with no-till is it is pretty sensitive if you, with for timing. There's definitely some kinds of farming operations that when you try, a lot of them are sensitive to timing. Some of them maybe more so than others. And so it sounds like you're not renting your drill anymore? We are not. We ended up purchasing that drill last year. So this, um, this is the first year the crops we seeded with that drill, it was our drill that we were seeding with. Do you, you have some of the details about your drill you want to share? I do. It's an AgPro um, hoe drill. It's a 2914 SL. It has an auger and it has a, a 14 inch spacings uh, and a five inch paired rows. Mm -hmm. And it's a hoe drill. And it, it does a great job reaching, trying to reach some of the moisture that maybe a disc drill wouldn't, wouldn't or a cross lot wouldn't, especially in our dry part of, part of the woods. Yep. My husband really likes it. The nice thing about no-till is you don't need as much help, right? You, um, you don't have to have somebody go out and rod weed for you during harvest, right? When you're, you may have, you may have to go spray it, but you can do that much quicker than you can rod weed. Are you guys on team weeded? So, um, we tried the weed at one year and actually our conservation district, our Whitman conservation district helped two producers in our area buy weed it sprayers. And I am so loving the weed it. We weren't ready to step up and buy the technology for a sprayer to do the weed it sprayer. So instead we are now doing a CSP contract through the NRCS that we're upgrading the technology on our, we have a John Deere self-propelled 120 foot sprayer. We're putting um, a technology on it that will allow a drone to go out and f photograph our fields like, and show us where all the green is. And it, you, it won't be nozzle, you know, each nozzle, but it's like a five foot section or something. It'll be a sectional sprayer, more sectional of control. even a smaller sectional control than what we have now. I think we have four sections now that he can turn on or off, but now it'll be like 10 or something. And so you Maybe did even like- more than that. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna incorporate- Like drone mapping? Type, yes, drone mapping where they go out like two days before we're gonna spray and they will map all of the little green weeds and they put it in the thumb drive in our sprayer and it will, Mark just drives the sprayer and it'll spray where those weeds are. So we're going halfway in between a weeded sprayer and normal, you know, conventional spraying. Well, it's still more of that precision approach as opposed precision. to the full broadcast application yes. on that fellow. Yes. So you're yes. still saving money. We are. <laughs> Yes, we are. And so we're looking forward to trying that out and seeing how it works. But we learned that. My husband learned about that technology at the Direct Seed Convention. So I think going to those conventions, you don't just learn about direct seeding. You learn about all kinds of other technology that's out there, conservation measures. That's great.
Thanks for sharing. Um, what's the most interesting thing you've learned from a past trial? Um, not putting the cattle out too soon if you're interceding. You know, if you're interceding some type of uh, yummy wheat variety that they're going to like better than your cover crop plants, make sure that that plant is big enough to withstand the cattle grazing on it. And the loss of moisture. When you lose that glorious cover, you lose your moisture quickly. But those are probably two big things. I've also found that um, some calves just tolerate hot wire very, very well. <laughs> like it doesn't shock them when it shocks you, but it won't shock them. Yeah. So make sure your wires, your hot wires are hot enough to keep them out of what you don't want them in. Yeah. Maybe there's a herd genetics component in there too that kind of gets weighted out over I, time. I think too. you're probably right. Our, our, our bull guy said he's noticed that there are some calves that just, for some reason, the electricity doesn't bump. So those are the ones that go to market, aren't they? How do you decide where to put your trials? I think I heard something about your granola patch. We talked a little bit about that. So yep. tell me a bit more about where you're trying things on your farm. Basically, it's a compromise situation between my husband and I of where he'll let me put them. We have a trough system set up where I can put the cattle in. And those are small little areas where they can, the cattle can go from like a little tiny cover crop area into the stubble and back and forth. So they aren't just eating on the cover crop, but they can also eat some, some of the, the stubble that's there too. Um, so I have to incorporate them where I have water because I don't want to haul water. Mm -hmm. That's pretty time consuming, trying to make it work smarter, not harder. Um, it's too many other things in your day that you'd rather be doing than hauling water. How long have you been running your, like, have you had that infrastructure to be able to do some more of that integrated grazing and the cover cropping? How long is, have you been doing that? I'm trying to think of what year we did that. Um, this might be the fourth year. Fourth, this is like the fourth year, I think. So maybe four years. And like, what kind of things have you seen along the way that have been really remarkable? I know you've talked about the moisture, you've talked about the butterflies and the birds, but you know, you know, especially as a soil scientist, like what's going on in that soil? The, the ground is maybe a little bit squishier to walk on. It's not so firm um, and hard. You got the organic matter in there that makes it um, not compact so much. How are the yields, I mean, are they comparable to the rest of the farm? Are oh, you yes. able to run those comparisons? Oh, yes. So this year, um, we haven't gotten much moisture and our yields are down probably 25% or more um, all around on all of our ground. And the area where we have our direct seeded ground right next to a conventionally farmed piece, we got five bushel more on the direct seeded ground than we did on the conventionally farmed ground, right next to each other. So Mark has decided that instead of having to haul equipment from a different part of our farm over to another piece, he's gonna start direct seeding that ground that's right next to the direct seed ground. 
that's a big move to do that. But I, I think he's going to appreciate that it's not going to take him as much time to manage that ground as it did before to do this. That's one of the things you hear about direct seed, I think, is that it's just less time on tractor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sprayer's much quicker. It gets over the ground a lot faster than a rod leader. Yeah. But we do have to watch out for herbicide resistance. So that's where the weeded sprayer comes in, right? Well, I've heard one of the things with that is you can actually use different mixes because the price because the cost is reduced so much it makes a whole different set of chemistries available Mm -hmm. you can afford them better because you're spraying i we have a friend that has a weeded sprayer that they have decreased the amount of chemical they buy by over 90 percent that's a that is a hell of a lot of money to save even you know those weeded sprayers cost you not not considering what the sprayer itself costs but just this the system to put on your sprayer is like 1500 bucks a foot okay when you have even a 100 foot sprayer that's $150,000 yeah they're not cheap it's nice that the conservation programs seem to be able to help offset some yep. of those costs it's very helpful that they do offset the cost of new technology and it's not just that technology. Like, I'm sure that our district would help somebody pay for a drone sprayer or a drone mapper and set up a system like we're doing, but we're doing it through the RCS instead. You do, you do really save a lot of money yeah. with that weeded sprayer, it seems like, yes. on the chemistry. If you think about how much you spend in your spray bill, your chemistry bill for weed spraying, when you don't need to spray every single inch of your ground, 95%. Say your spray bill is $300,000 a year. It's a big number. That's a lot of money to save. A lot of money to save. And you can put it towards something else. Like paying your ground off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely plenty of things to pay for in yeah. farming, isn't there? Yeah. Upgrading <laughs> equipment. I don't know. Buying more technology that helps you work smarter, not harder. Taking your wife on vacation. Well, that's helpful, too. Well, I think I heard Mark say that. <laughs> did you hear it? Yeah. yeah. I think I did, too. <laughs> I think he said Belize. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Go, Mark. Go, Mark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anniversary, January, January, honey. That sounds like a farmer anniversary. Yes. How about the weeds in your in your cover crop patch, and also the yields in your cover crop patch? Weeds Weeds in my cover crop. Mm -hmm. The very first cover crop that I planted, I literally could walk through my cover crop and hand pick all the weeds that grew in it. That's how few weeds were in it. How few weeds were in it? Yeah. The second cover crop, um, Mark wasn't very happy about it, but he, him and the hired guy had to go out and pull some weeds in it because I was too busy doing other stuff. So, yeah. How about the type of weeds? Were they the same as what you see in in the fields or were they a little different because your mix was different? Very few Russians, probably some kochia. I don't know what the little low-lying ones that kind of like are rosette. How about how about your yields in your cover crop, like following your cover crop planting? It sounds like it's, with the moisture, you kind of had a little bit of a debacle, so maybe you don't have a good 
so comparison from that 2020, year. We had a pretty good year for moisture. 2021 was a disaster for everyone. For everybody. Yeah. So it didn't, it wouldn't have mattered. It was just a disaster. Um, I do know that part of where I have my cover crop, the person that farmed it prior to us, there was an area there where he always brought his equipment in. So it was very compacted. Um, but he probably dumped some of his chemical out there. I mean, like on accident kind of stuff. And it just doesn't grow very well. Um, this year we had a spring crop on it and Ashley grew pretty well. I mean, it was, my husband said that it was probably the prettiest looking spring wheat we had. Ooh. Until we didn't get any moisture. Yeah, so they're place that moisture again. Yeah, I think Whitman yeah. County, I heard some some pretty pretty staggering numbers comparative to average precipitation that we've gotten in Whitman County this year. Not much. Yeah, I, can, I couldn't even tell you how much we did, have not gotten. But it was a beautiful crop, and it was really nice to hear that it was probably our prettiest spring crop until the no moisture thing. Well, if it was the university, you'd have to get like biomass data and like leaf area index, and then you would know even if it didn't yield out. Oh, but I know on working farms that matters less. But that's one of the ways you can kind of guess what it could potentially do. So when you replicate it over a couple years, okay, Amy, what is one thing you would really like to try but can't right now because of some sort of limitation, whether it's equipment, precipitation, some sort of lease agreement? What's your pie in the sky thing to try? I really, really, really would love to have a weeded sprayer. <laughs> so the next best thing is the drone mapping. So for now, we will try that and maybe we'll save enough money that we can afford a weeded. I hope so. And then I'll come back and ask you about how your weeded's going. Yeah. We did use a weeded sprayer one year. We rented it because when the Whitman Conservation District um, purchased Weeded sprayers help purchase the weeded sprayers for two of our producers in our area. And it wasn't, for some reason, it came from another producer and it wasn't calibrated right. And so there were some issues with it and it didn't spray the way it should have. I don't remember exactly what it was. So the weeded sprayer. I really would love to have a weeded sprayer. And I know there's some other technologies out there, like um, maybe in the Midwest, they have more moisture, they don't have to worry about burning the place down, but they use like uh, electrodes or something to zap the weeds. And that might not be very good here, but I know there's other things out there that they're coming up with. Weeded sprayer. I'm excited for Weeded. you to get that. Yes. I like your solution to it though. I mean, that there's innovation there too, right? Of like, well, this is the first point and maybe that'll help us save enough money to go to the next level. Yep. All right. What's the most annoying part about living on a farm? Uh, let's see. Oh, that would be when people ask how much ground we farm. <laughs> I didn't do that. Today. How much ground do we have? I, I asked about part. the cows. I, I don't know. think I asked. Actually... And then I said, <laughs> and then I was going to say, and how many cattle we have. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did do. I'm sorry. It's okay. Some people don't care and some people do. So everybody has their own feelings about that which yeah. is okay you know it's their farm and I have to think the normal person 
has no idea what we do out here. They have no idea even probably what an acre is, like how actually big an acre is. So quite honestly, to tell somebody that's a non-farming person, they're just wouldn't understand the, or grasp the concept. But in terms, probably not in terms of like workload or profitability right. or anything. Right. Right. Like, right. Yeah. I so, that. so it probably shouldn't be something that annoys me, but Hey, I asked the question. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, it's been really great to have this conversation with you, Amy. I love that just the way you've so fearlessly come into this a chapter of your life. You weren't born into this farm and the way it's just it's beautiful this space that you've how you've made it your own and how that space has been created to have the a farm partnership um and i just i really appreciate your perspective on it and yeah thanks for sharing well thank you for having me i really appreciate you choosing me <laughs> well yes well, that was like Pretty cool. Oh, you got some pretty legendary on-farm trials. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, do you know anyone else with some legendary on-farm trials who you'd I, like to nominate? I do. I have Justin Ani. Considering we get a lot of our dollars from the districts and from the federal government and from the state government for carbon, basically call it carbon farming, that's going to be the wave of the future and they're doing some great carbon farming that's great thank you so much for having me out to visit your farm right here in the middle of harvest you brave soul um i really appreciate it we've gotten interrupted a couple times with some very natural farming occurrences during harvest it's been a really great experience thank you thank you very much as always, a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. This podcast is produced by the PNW Farmers Network team with music credit to Carlos Flores. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.